Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. Monday, August 14th, 2023, and we're on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebick with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Euro. and even though I'm trying to get off of the added sugars, I'm going to make an exception this week because we're talking about the candy darter. beautiful fish. I'm really pleased to introduce our guests, Andrew Phipps from our White Sulphur Springs National Fish Hatchery and Nate Owens from the West Virginia Division of Natural Resources. So candy darter, again, a lovely fish, very beautiful. You two are very familiar with this fish and we'd love if you could help us imagine what it would be like to see one in a stream or in hand. Just what do they look like? So the candy darter is a fairly robust small fish. They'll range up to about 100 to 120 millimeters at max size. And when you say 100 millimeters, that's what, like four inches, something like that? Yeah. So a small, a smallish fish. Yeah, they have a somewhat blunt snout, mouth is subterminal, but they're very sexually dimorphic. The males are very colorful with alternating vertical bars of orange and yellow and green and blue. The females are more drab with sort of subdued barring with sort of X's in a dark brownish color laterally. The big thing with this species is that they have usually five dorsal saddles, sometimes six, versus some of the other closely related species in the region having four saddles, as well as they have a higher lateral line scale count versus Mm -hmm. the other two, which was noted in their original common name that was given to the species, which was known as the fine-scaled saddle darter, based on this lateral line count versus the variegate darter and the canal darter, which are also regionally distributed. How'd they get the name change from the fine-scaled saddle darter to the candy darter? So in the early 90s, it was thought that the name just really didn't do it justice And in 91, they changed it to the candy darter to better represent its coloration. The ventral stripe that sort of links several of the dorsal bars along the side of the fish is known sort of as a candy stripe. So that's Mm -hmm. why uh, they moved it to the candy darter. That's a good technical description of the fish, but the coloration is lovely. It's like reds and greens. It looks kind of almost like Christmas colors. Anything else, Andrew, you'd like to add about just how the fish looks? I know you handle a lot in the hatchery. I think they look like a big red and orange green lollipop. You know, those big swirl (laughs) lollipops. They're stunning. You know, that's the main thing. I always say that it's very easy to convince folks to save these animals. You don't have to sell them very hard. So so we're fortunate enough here at the hatchery that with Nate's help, we keep about 30 or 40 animals on station at all times for propagation work. But it's also lent itself to being able to expose people to this fish without having to go too far from home. So basically here at White Sulphur Springs, I am leading the unit called the ARC. I guess that makes me know in some ways. Uh, but we're, we're up here... Uh, we were very lucky to have Joel Satori come in and take a picture of Big Bruce. <laughs> He's world famous now, one of our big nuptial male candy darters. I got to help chase Bruce around with a paintbrush to get him to flare out so Joel could take the photo. It's quite 
It's quite the photo. It made it on to the stamp that's coming out here. I think it's out now. Got a copy of it at home with the Endangered Species Series for PhotoArc. And so what a wonderful thing to have to try to promote this truly Appalachian fish and what a wonderful little species of fish it is. Where can people get the stamp? Uh, you can get them at the post office. I went down here and asked, and I think if they don't have them on hand, they can order them. So hopefully, you know, you guys can still get those. Uh, some great pictures on there of some other fish species, some great work by CFI, Conservation Fisheries, down in Tennessee, that Joel's taken a lot of photos down there and worked with them extensively over the years. So there's some killer photos on there. It's great yeah. picture of Persona Rex. So. That's definitely a set of stamps to get. Yeah. Perfect. That's cool. So this population of 30 fish that you got, where'd they all come from and what are you doing to sort of maintain genetic integrity within this population? Right. So so we're working with Nate and we're working with West Virginia University. And so I think that's a great question for Nate to answer and kind of elaborate on how we're handling the genetics for those animals. Yeah. So in West Virginia, we have two forms of the species and research conducted by one of my uh, previous colleagues, Isaac Gibson, as well as Bryn Kessinger, suggested that there's two forms of this species within our state separated by physiographic provinces, um, what we consider to be the Ridge and Valley, basically the west downstream side of the Blue Ridge, and the Appalachian Plateau form that's in our Gully River system. And so right now, the major concern with this species is the upstream dispersal of the uh, variegate darter and their punitive hybrids up the Greenbrier system. And that was the study that basically tried to quantify the extent of the aggressive hybridization that's occurring with the candy darter. And that's really mm -hmm. what, in our opinion, justified the species being listed in the first place. Obviously, the species is an intolerant species, particularly to sedimentation and such. But without the hybridization occurring, it probably wouldn't have been warranted to oh, be wow. listed, probably, at least in our opinion, because in West Virginia, which really has about 90% of its range, probably, oh, about half of it, I'd say half to maybe two-thirds of the range is in severe jeopardy to being extirpated due to that hybridization. So wow. the outlook in West Virginia is not too good. Um, uh, at least for one form of the species. And there's likely evidence suggests that we likely have a cryptic species as well. So a second candy darter that's distributed in our gully river system. It's separated by a physiographic province change. So one's more sandstone geology versus more of a limestone underlaid gully or Greenbrier river system. So have you got um, these variegates in both? We do, to an extent, less so in the Gully River system, which basically there's two large dams. You know, dams are normally thought of being negatively associated with aquatic organisms for passage. But in this particular instance, barriers are actually acting as the only thing that's allowing the species to persist. Yep. So we have a large dam on our Gully River system that's sort of stopping the upstream expansion of the variegate darter in that system and we have another dam called bluestone dam which is on the new river system the new river proper and it's just upstream of the greenbrier river and that dam is sort of stopping the we'll say natural in air quotes being that they wouldn't be there without human introduction but the natural upstream progression of 
the hybrids and their parental species. Um, gotcha. I was going to just ask how they got up above the like, falls in the first place. Yes, it's thought that it's likely bait bucket introductions. I would say it is, but you know, you preface it by saying likely sometimes. But it was likely introduced by trout anglers. In fact, in the species description of the variegate darter, it suggested that the variegate darter is a very colorful fish that's lively on the hook. So, you know, a lot of people were saying, oh, bait bucket, they'd never get a darter for bait, but they do because they're colorful. Mm. So they were introduced above Canal Falls and a couple trout streams. We think that there was likely two introductions and we've seen mm. upstream and downstream dispersal of their offspring. The early life history is relatively unknown more robustly understood anyway, but there's larval drift that occurs in this species and to the extent that occurs as well as some general upstream migration through their life we've seen it expand all the way up into the uppermost pristine parts of the watershed and the greenbrier which is basically their last stronghold for that form or species which is really what's uh we call it the ridge and valley species it's basically where the transition zone is happening in the blue ridge and the appalachian plateau and then the other form in the gully system is up on the plateau and the gully system i mentioned about the different geologies and such which is really likely why the canal darter likely speciated from Osborne to begin with, being that the canal darter is upstream of the Blue Ridge and in the Blue Ridge, and downstream passing into the Ridge and Valley system is where the Osborne starts. Okay. And we believe there's likely a break down in the gully when it goes up into the sandstone geology. <laughs> But all that stuff is in need of some further research to get it described. I like how fish biologists, you seem to have a really good knowledge of the geology and like, yeah, just that connection with the landscape and the waterscape with fish like this that you're working with. I think for my job in particular, and I think a lot of fish biologists should probably maybe hit the book, so to speak, and learn the zoogeography or what at least is best understood for the species, particularly in the central apps, because there's high levels of indemnity there. So you can very easily extirpate a species just by trying to do such things as move forage fish for a sport Mm -hmm. fish population or crazy notions like that, that I've heard thrown around from time to time. But this is probably one of the best examples mostly because it is a colorful, charismatic species, and now it's listed, of yep. uh, a case study as to why you shouldn't move fish um, or any aquatic organism. And so our focus right now is trying to get those Greenbrier River form fish in a situation where we can add redundancy to the species. Therefore, we're trying to work with those fish that Drew have right now are from the Ridge and Valley form in the Greenbrier River system. Okay. I'd like to know just a little bit more. We know this is an Appalachian fish, so they're in West Virginia, Virginia. From a micro level, like, yeah, what kind of habitats are you finding them in? Yes, of this group, there's about seven species, give or take one, in this complex, the variatum complex. And this stretches from 
the upper extent of the new river system, which is part of the ancient Taze River system and stretches all the way down to the Mississippi system. And this species, the candy darter, is known to be probably the most intolerant to perturbations and has the narrowest species requirements. They're generally found in a moderate gradient riffle in upland habitats that has cool or cold water. So they do have a relatively low thermal tolerance where the sister species, the variegate darter, which is hybridizing with the candy darter, is thought to have a sort of a higher thermal tolerance. So it can inhabit sort of habitats that may not be conducive to candy darters while still being able to occupy what would be their prime habitats that the candy darter is relegated to. Yeah. And then I guess, Andrew, you know, you're in a hatchery system. You got fish from the wild that have these specific requirements. How are you raising them in the hatchery? Is there any kind of special needs they have? Like this is kind of a big deal to take a fish like this and have it reproduce and then raise up the young. I guess I'd just like to know a little bit more. Yeah. So I think we encountered some pretty unique challenges with this fish. The temperature is a big deal. So we have some very specialized chiller systems that we are working with to be able to get those fish down cool enough and keep them down cool. Even right now, the heat of summer, they're about running about 17, 18 degrees C. So, you know, we'll run them down really cold during the winter. So we're working on actually improving our chiller systems right now. We're getting some water cool flow through chillers to be able to take them down a little cooler during the winter to try to better mimic the natural stream conditions. This was our first year holding them in captivity long-term this year. We've had some really good success. Survival's been really high. We're really happy with it. We also are dealing with very low specific connectivities coming from that stream around 25 microsiemens is where they're at. So it's very pure, clean water. So our water here at the hatchery has a lot more minerals in it. The specific connectivity is higher. And so we had to install RODI system to be able to provide the appropriate water for those fish. And so we're chilling the water. We're doing a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. It's a real nursery. Yeah, we've actually just purchased a new system that helps us to control pH and specific conductivity on its own. So it's got some dosing pumps and so that we aren't having to use as much Kentucky windage on trying to dial that in. Okay. I think it's so cool that like Nate, you've got your specialty with the, yeah, the kind of the wild habitat, the, you know, geology. And then Andrew, you got uh, hatcheries are pretty complex in terms of making these kind of artificial systems work for these wild fish. What was it like when this fish first spawned in your hatchery? Like is, that's pretty recently, right? Where you guys had this new kind of milestone? Yeah. So, so we're always up and down on that. We had not as successful a spring this year as we did last year. So we got them to spawn successfully and we got babies out last year. Changed a few things this year and we're still tweaking and moving. It's always fun when you're dealing with something new because it seems that you take three steps forward and four steps back and it's always one or two little things that suddenly fall in place and everything works and it's always fun to see what those two or three things are but in the interim you're beating your head kind of on the desk occasionally yeah we have got them to spawn successfully in in captivity here and it's great it's quite a ritual to watch you know they're (laughs) pretty complex they've got this really neat little dance that they do and there's all this movement and the females are fairly selective with the males and uh, it's quite a process can you show us the dance 
I've got some fantastic hand movements, but so so what's really neat is when they are ready to spawn, they start bobbing up and down in the tanks and moving around. And so I think that's it's kind of twofold. You know, they live in these cobbly environments and higher gradients, and so they probably can't see each other. So they're kind of like bobbing up, looking for each other, but they're also most likely using that pressure change to move those eggs around. Oh, cool. So they start bobbing, then the males will find a female, the female will go to the male, the male kind of will strut around and, and puff up with these really beautiful fins that they have. And the female, whenever she's ready, she'll actually dive down into the gravel and flick herself and create this really neat visual cue for the male. And she gets herself leveled down in the gravel and he can then get on top of her and shake her to get the eggs out. It's really cool. Ah. Are they burying the eggs, attaching the eggs to some other surface? What are they doing with them? It's kind of like broadcast spawning, but it's not. So there's eggs come out and they kind of spread out in the gravel. But she will kind of move from place to place. And so they'll spawn in multiple locations. So she's periodically spawning a few eggs here and there. But they're slightly tacky. So when they hit that gravel, they're staying down in there. Can you see the eggs pretty well? Or are they pretty tiny? If the eggs are good, they're very hard to see. They look almost like a beautiful wine glass with a little drop of oil in the corner. And they're they're almost crystal clear. Okay. Wow. So you spawn these fish. They have their eggs. The babies start growing. How big are you growing them to? And then are you working with like Nate's crew to get them back into the wild? Or what's the next step once the hatchery piece works? Yeah, so if we can get them grown out, which we did last year, um, last year we grew them to about 70 millimeters. Two inches, two and a half inches. Um, but yeah, Nate can talk a little bit about how we're stocking and what we're doing yeah. on that end of things, I think. Okay. Yes, we've been working on this project for a long time in partnership with the hatchery and as well as others, U.S. Forest Service, DEP, other parts of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, NCTC. Uh, USGS that help out with us going to collect these things. So we've not only been collecting fish for propagation efforts, but we've also been conducting translocations of the species. So basically what we do is we go out and we perform habitat surveys to better quantify the habitat at locations that are within their historic distribution that are in areas that don't have variegate darters or their associated hybrids of the species with substantial barriers to them getting there naturally. So what we've done is to date, we've tried to establish this species at three different locations, and we've been able to determine occupancy at two of those and natural reproduction and recruitment at one. So this is something that we're monitoring as we're ongoing, and it's thought that primarily from the translocation efforts that we've done so far with the addition of the individuals that have come from the hatchery that we've been successfully able to repatriate this species that is now having recruitment as well as distribution expansion and colonization of downstream and upstream habitats from the stocking locations. So that has been sort of one of my favorite milestones with the species is to go out and monitor the stocked locations and see that species in a place where it has been extirpated from. So when you say you're observing recruitment, is that just finding juveniles that are a smaller size than what you stocked or are you marking the fish that you stock in and finding adults that are unmarked? 
So with this species, it's a catch-22 in a way, being that it's, an, of course, endangered species. Uh, you really want to limit the amount of harassment and take that you have with the species. But because this species is suffering from hybridization, we have to mm. collect a fin clip or some genetic sample from every individual that we stock or at least from their parents and all the individuals that we've translocated have been fin clipped. So in the field, we know by the presence of a regenerated fin, and we always clip a portion of the pelvic fin. So we look for that in every individual, and you can basically backdate the size of the individual and whether or not that individual would be of natural reproduction. And we were able to detect adult individuals with no fin clip, in the system this past spring and last fall. So we're fairly confident that population is establishing and uh, the catch per unit efforts that we've observed uh, in this system is reasonable when you're comparing the extant populations given its drainage area. So mm -hmm. comparing apples to apples, basically being able to tell that they're derived from within the system. I think it's really cool how you two are working together. I'd love to hear just a, a little bit more about the hatchery and its like mission and what you all have there. Because I know we have a number of hatcheries across the U.S. and each one is different and very cool. And some of them you can visit. And Nate, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your unit with Native Fish and just kind of your mission. Oh, on the upper end of the hatchery, we, we kind of have our, our hands full. We work with a couple of different things. So we're producing about seven or eight different species of freshwater mussel. Okay. We work with um, a threatened crayfish, and we're getting ready to start working with an endangered crayfish. So we're working with the big sandy crayfish, and we're looking at working with the guy and dot river crayfish. And then, of course, we work with candy darter. And so our overall mission is to facilitate recovery of native species, mostly imperiled animals or threatened species, and to help folks like Nate and the state out in their mission. And the West Virginia Field Office, we work a lot on their recovery goals. And so we're guided by these recovery plans and guided by these recovery activities. And that's what we're trying to do is help reestablish populations and it's been really nice to do that and work on this animal. And they, that milestone that we hit this year is a big one. I think mm -hmm. it's really important to mention, too, we have kind of a core candy darter conservation group that includes Nate, myself, uh, some folks from West Virginia University, the Forest Service, and a few other folks. And we were actually able to win the Recovery Challenge Award this year. And so that was really yeah. neat. Awesome. Okay. Yeah. And so none of that happens without this really big team of folks. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we've got folks at West Virginia doing genetics and they doing collection. And so really, really a huge team effort, but we're really happy. And our goal is just to facilitate a lot of this stuff. We facilitate the trap and transport by holding the animals mm -hmm. while the genetics are being ran before Nate comes and gets some. And then we're also doing propagation stuff. So we're kind of just a middleman of sorts in all of this. Okay. And Nate, how about your group? Yeah. So here at the West Virginia DNR, I'm in charge of what we affectionately call the Aquatic Community Assessment and Restoration Program, <laughs> in which we're 
relatively fish focused. However, we coordinate with folks both in our endangered species program and our zoology program and our malacology program to try to uh, basically prevent things from getting on this endangered species list. And so we have about 162 native species of fishes in the state, and this is one of them that we work with. And we're trying to make gains and headway here to hopefully just keep this species around. And maybe in the future, with collaboration with folks, we can do things to uh, maybe repatriate it or at least remove the hybrids from part of the range that they're yeah. now extirpating the candy darter from. But think that'll take some advances from a genetic standpoint and propagation standpoint to be able to get things such as Trojan females or Trojan males to maybe try to look at collapsing these populations in the future, which may be oh, a wow. point of contention, but really I don't Sounds think cool. there's much of an alternative. I think it's too labor intensive to go out and try to sample this fish or sample this species or these populations of hybrid species out of existence and I would never be in favor of doing such a thing as you know rote owning these systems because there's too many mm -hmm. other species about depending upon where you draw the species line between eight and twelve species that are endemic to the upper canal yeah system. that's a lot yeah so what other fish are you working on Nate everything that we have in the state so I'm in charge of the entire non-game fish program for the state so that's cool. uh, we have stuff going on with candy darter and diamond darter, our two endangered species. Mm -hmm. The last couple of years, we've been out collecting fin clips for a genetic study on the bluestone sculpin, which is another upper canal endemic. And it's up for SSA, so we're trying to contribute to a data gap there. Basically, trying to figure out if it is indeed a different species or not. It's a good thing to, I think, figure that out before you list the thing. Yep. <laughs> and uh, so we've been out doing that as well as we have a routine. It's sort of ongoing projects where we do benthic trawling in our large rivers, trying to detect particularly benthic species, darters in particular, in our large rivers, as well as our regular stream fish community surveys and monitoring projects that we have. So that's sort of like our bread and butter work. And then mm -hmm. we have sort of species-centric projects such as this candy darter project that we've been working on oh heck really before it was listed and that was it was listed what 2018 something like that yeah is there anything you would want to tell the public about why they should care about this fish like 30 seconds yeah, so I think that beyond it being charismatic, this species is a great indicator of water quality. Like Drew mentioned, it's one that lives in relatively dilute upland habitats that cannot have very much sedimentation. So those things are things that the regular landowner or large landowner can do, such as fencing their cattle out of the stream or increasing the buffering capacity that you put on a riparian timber harvest. Things like that can really help to protect this species from a physical perspective. However, one thing that the general angler and fisherman can do is that really they need to recognize that the central Appalachian region has a wealth of biodiversity, and that's no exemption for the aquatic fauna and the ichthyofauna in this region. And with such high levels of endemnity, it's integral that 
people do not move aquatic organisms and particularly fishes because um, darters and other species, the new river system, this is a great case example, the candy darter. There is historically about 34 species that were native to above Canal Falls in this system. And to date, there is about 95 species detected in this system. So two-thirds oh, of the system is uh, introduced almost. Mm-hmm. And this is one example of where that can result in the large extirpations of a species from areas, or hopefully not, if all of our efforts hold true and people don't introduce variegate darters from where they are currently distributed then maybe we can keep this species around. Otherwise, it will result in its extinction. Um, oh, man. Though hopefully, if people heed warnings and don't move bait fish, I'm hopeful that we can keep this species around. Perfect. Andrew, you got like five seconds? <laughs> Dump your bait. Don't transfer your bait around. And hopefully, you know, if you guys are by white sulfur, come and see us. That's my 30 seconds. I've also learned that Nate and I are about as succinct as a phone book when it comes to summarizing. <laughs> awesome. Thank you too so much. This was fascinating. Really beautiful fish. Get that stamp. Go visit the hatchery. And thank you too for joining us. Get out there and enjoy all the fish, especially the candy darter. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebeck and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Race Car. Produced and story edited by Tasha A.F. Lemley. Production management by Gabriella Montequin. Post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Regional Office of External Affairs. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish. <laughs>